0: We continue our worship by coming to our call to fellowship, given from Psalm 81. Here are my people, while I admonish you. O Israel, if you would but listen to me, there shall be no strange God among you. You shall not bow down to a foreign God. I am the Lord your God, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Open your mouth wide, and I will fill it. Here we come to the word of God, where it is preached to us. We must remember that the table of the Lord is what is prepared for us here this morning. And once again, we hear the psalmist say, Remember God's word. In fact, he reminds us of the first commandment here. Have no other gods before me. One cannot feast at the table of the Lord and serve the gods of this world. The psalmist even shows this by saying, remember you were slaves in Egypt and I brought you out of slavery. (coughs) The food of the slave... The leeks and garlics of Egypt, or what we would call the fast food of the world, saps your strength and it weakens you. Hear the call, come and dine, the master's table is set for you. Eat of his bread and wine and be strengthened and filled unto the service of the Lord, is what the psalmist is saying. This morning we have Reverend Pierce He's from the URC Church in Loveland, uh, a chaplain. He's going to bring us the word of God this morning. Listen carefully. Open your mouths wide and let God fill them.
1: I just want to say a couple things before we read the word. First, I bring you greetings from Calvary United Reformed Church in Loveland, uh, a sister church in Napark, and I want to bring you the greetings from them. And second, I want to ask you a couple questions before we go to the word. And that first question is, how well do you know your God? How well do you know him? And the second is, is knowing God the primary goal of your life? And to help inspire you in that way, I just want to read from Knowing God. Uh, J.I. Packer says this, he says, What makes life worthwhile is having a big enough objective something that captures our imagination and lays hold of our allegiance. And this the Christian has in a way that no other man has. For what higher, more exalted, more compelling goal can there be than to know God? And so really knowing God is our eternal pursuit. One of my favorite passages is John seventeen three, where Jesus himself said, now this is eternal life that you may know that they may know you the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you sent. So this morning we're going to get to know God better. And we're going to look at a beautiful attribute of God. And that's the attribute of attributes called the holiness of God. So we'll read the word now. Uh, Isaiah chapter 6, will you please turn with me there? And I believe we rise for the reading of the word, is that correct? Hear the word of the Lord. In the year that King Isaiah died, I saw the Lord, seated on a throne, high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphs, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, and with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. Lord, we've opened your word, and now we ask that you would open our hearts to receive it. We're thankful that your word does not return void, and so we pray that it would have its intended effect in each one of our lives today. Please open our eyes, help us to listen carefully, move by your spirit so that your word will land on us in a powerful way. We pray all this in Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. congregation of Jesus Christ with your Bibles open we're going to take a look at Isaiah 6 and as we approach Isaiah 6 the first thing that we're told is when Isaiah received this powerful vision when he received his commissioning it was in the year that King Isaiah died well who was King Isaiah, and when did King Isaiah reign well, we know that he ruled from the years 792 to 740 BC. He served for 40, 52 years, and he was only 16 years when he began his reign. 16 years old when he began his reign over Judah. Isaiah is described in the Bible as a good king, a godly king, one who was upright and served the Lord, and that's kind of rare in Judah. And so, God blessed him greatly. And he became very powerful. You can read more about his reign in Second Chronicles chapter 26. But in Second Chronicles twenty-six sixteen, it says, But after Uzziah became powerful, his pride led to his downfall. And what was that prideful thing that Uzziah did that led to his downfall? Well, Uzziah went into the temple and he demanded that he be allowed to burn incense before the Lord. Azariah the priest and 80 other courageous priests confronted him and they told him that he as king was not allowed to do this. It was only the priests who were consecrated, who were set apart, that were, could enter the holy place to offer up incense before the holy Lord. But this didn't settle well with powerful King Uzziah. He was the great, the powerful king of Judah. And so he became angry. And while he was raging at the priests before the altar in the temple, leprosy broke out on his forehead. The Lord afflicted him with this dreaded disease. So Isaiah ended his reign, cut off from the people, and cut off from the temple of the Lord. He had to live in a separate house until the day he died. Now it was in this year that God came to Isaiah and commissioned him as a prophet. It was a year in which Judah was mourning the loss of a great earthly king, one who had been radically humbled. But it was also a year in which Judah needed to turn her eyes from this earthly king to look up to the heavenward, the true king of kings, and repent of their ongoing rebellion against God. And that's why he commissions Isaiah. Before we look at the text, you also need to notice one more thing, that it is God who comes to Isaiah. Isaiah. Isaiah didn't come to God and boldly and presumptuously applied for the position of prophet. No, God came to him and he brought Isaiah into his heavenly throne room through a vision. Well, when Isaiah entered the throne room, what did he see? His gaze was immediately fixed on the one who was seated on the throne. He tells us in verse 1, I saw the Lord. And that word in the original language is Adonai. I saw Adonai, and that's a title for the sovereign one, the one who rules over all. And so it's fitting that he goes on to tell us that Adonai was high and exalted, he was lifted up in the most lofty place of the temple. And then we read that the train of his robe filled the temple. The train of a king's robe was a symbol of that king's power and authority. The longer the train, the more powerful, more power and authority that king claimed to have. So we would expect the Lord's train to be longer than any king's train, and it most certainly was. What do we read? It filled the entire temple. So this is telling us that he truly is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. He's overall, he's sovereign, he's Adonai. Can you imagine such a scene? The curtain of heaven has been pulled back for Isaiah and for us. And it's shocking to the human system. We just get a little glimpse into God's very throne room. And it's his majesty and might that are the first things that stand out for us. Next, according to verse 2, Isaiah's attention is drawn to some angelic beings who are hovering before the throne, above the throne. Look at verse 2. Above him, above Adonai, were seraphs, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. We're not told much more about seraphs like this in the Bible, uh, there, is, uh, there are similar six-winged creatures described in Revelation chapter 4. And we probably shouldn't give them a whole lot more attention than to note this. These were not sinful fallen creatures. And yet we see them compelled to use two of their wings to cover their faces. They realized they couldn't even gaze directly at God's great glory and majesty. They also used two of their wings to cover their feet. They knew that they were on holy ground. And as they hovered in the presence of the exalted creator, they found it necessary to hide their creaturely feet. Are you beginning to grasp just how high and exalted our God really is? Well, now we come to the most revealing and life-changing verse in our passage. Verse 3. And these seraphs, what were they doing? They were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. So these seraphs were calling antiphonally to each other, calling back and forth. And what was it that they were talking about? They were talking about God's great holiness. Now, when you think of the holiness of God, what do you think about? What does it mean that God is holy? Well, usually people's first thought is that of God's purity, that he's upright in character, that he's marked by moral sinlessness. He's totally perfect. In one word, he's spotless. There's no sin in him at all. He's spotless. Well, that is part of the meaning, but that's actually the secondary meaning of holiness. Actually, our first thought should be that of God's separateness. The original, in the original language, the word is Kadesh. And that means to cut, to separate. It's best said is set apart. That's what it means. So this is telling us that our God is otherly, that he's transcended, that he exceeds the usual bounds, that he is very high and he's hugely lifted up. His sacred majesty is so beautiful and bright that it appears that he is utterly unapproachable. He's far above us as our creator. He is our God. There was a professor in seminar, you may have heard his name before, Cornelius Ventile. He wanted to impress on his students this concept every time he taught. And so when he entered his classroom, he'd go to the chalkboard and he'd draw a huge circle like this and then a tiny circle down here. He wanted his students never to forget God is creator, you are creature, never ever forget that. So when you think about God's holiness, you need to keep both of these thoughts in mind. That God is separate and otherly, he's great. And secondly, that he is spotless and upright, he is good. Children, you may have heard that prayer, you may have been taught this prayer. God is great, God is good. And we thank him for this food. Well, right in that little prayer, it says he is great and he is good. Those are the That's the attribute right there of holiness. He's great and good. Well, now we're ready to ask the main question for this morning. The question asked in the title, how holy are you, God? Well, the seraphs answered this question loud and clear. They said, God is holy, holy, holy holy. Perhaps you've heard this phrase before, and it's likely that you've sung that song, holy, holy, holy. So this may not have a whole lot of impact on you. You may say, well, pastor, let's move on. I know that God's holy, holy, holy. Well, actually, this word holy is repeated three times for a reason. You see, in the Hebrew language, words were repeated for emphasis, much like, when we're typing, we put a word in bold script. We want to emphasize it. And for example, also, when Christ said, truly, truly, I say to you, he wasn't just being redundant. He was saying, listen up. This is very important. I'm telling you the truth, emphatically telling you the truth. Well, here we find the word holy is being spoken three times. And this is very, very rare. Rare. R.C. Sproul in his book The Holiness of God by the way I've got to give R.C. Sproul a lot of credit for this sermon his book The Holiness of God you'll, you'll sense it throughout this message he the, explains the significance of this phrase very well so I quote him at this point he said only once in sacred scripture is an attribute of God elevated to the third degree only once is a characteristic of God mentioned three times in succession The Bible says that God is holy, holy, holy. Not that he's merely holy or even holy, holy. He is holy, holy, holy. The Bible never says that God is love, love, love or mercy, mercy, mercy or wrath, wrath, wrath or justice, justice, justice. It does say that he is holy, holy, holy. The whole earth is full of his glory. End of quote. So this threefold repetition of holy is significant. It's meant to impress on you and me that our God is infinitely holy. That he's holy beyond degree. He's holy beyond the comprehension of our puny minds. Your God is infinitely holy. He's absolutely exalted. He is totally pure. This holiness of God is extremely hard for us to grasp, isn't it? And why is that? Because everything around us and we ourselves are unholy, unholy, unholy. We live on the level of the profane. Everything we think about, everything we do, everything we see, it's common, it's earthly, and it's marred by sin because of the fall. And even as believers... We have only a small taste of this holiness. Yes, we are being renewed in true knowledge, holiness, and righteousness, but we are not completely holy until the glorified state. So on this side of eternity, we have a very difficult time understanding this great attribute of God. We're going to have all eternity, though, to probe its steps, aren't we? Let's go on now to rejoin Isaiah in the throne room. After the impact of these powerful words have hit, it, hit him, Isaiah realizes the sound of the seraphs' voices is shaking the entire temple. Look at verse 4. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and the thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Just the voice of these mighty seraphs, as they're expressing some of the glory that is due God, shakes the doorposts and even the very threshold, the ground that you walk in on. So everything's shaking. And as Isaiah looks around, he sees smoke everywhere. What a scene to behold. What a great God you and I have. But it's not only the doorposts and the thresholds that are shaking. Let's go on to verse 5. There we read, woe to me, I cried. I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. The body of Isaiah is trembling as well. Up to now, he's been silent. He's been observing everything. And now he cries out, and note what he says. He says, woe to me. It's a bit of an odd expression in our day, isn't it? We don't use it often. I did notice it was in our liturgy. I was kind of surprised. We don't talk about woe very often. Usually it means stop horses. But of course in scripture it's very different. When Isaiah is using woe here, what's he saying? Woe is a pronouncement of doom and destruction. Defined, a woe is an oracle delivered by a prophet to God's people to warn them of impending judgment. Well, what you need to notice here is that Isaiah, the prophet, pronounces doom on himself. He calls down God's judgment on himself. The prophet realizes that he is cursed. He's seen God Almighty, and no one in a fallen state sees God Almighty and lives to tell about it. God can't even look on sin. He can't have a speck of sin in heaven in front of him. Well, immediately after that curse of doom, Isaiah went on to say, I am ruined. That's the NIV translation. I actually prefer the older King James version. He says, for I am undone. That more vividly expresses the meaning of the original language. What Isaiah is saying here is that he is coming apart at the seams. He's coming unglued. He's disintegrating. I like that word the best. Disintegrating. He doesn't have it all together. He's, rather, he's falling apart in God's awesome presence. Now, you need to remember something. This is Isaiah that we're talking about. Isaiah Ben-Amaz, the son of Amos. Isaiah was a respected statesman down on earth. He was re- regarded by his contemporaries as the most righteous man in the nation. He was a virtuous and upright man. And all it took was just one glimpse of God in all his glory, and all his holiness, and he comes entirely undone. He's no longer able to compare himself to other men on earth. He's in the throne room of God, and as he sees the ultimate standard of holiness, he comes unglued. He senses all his blackness and filth as he encounters God's brightness and beauty. The blackness and the uncleanness that Isaiah notices first is his lips. He just used his lips and he notices that. He says, for I am a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. He realizes that he should not even speak in God's holy presence. He's not worthy to join the seraphs in their expressions of praise and adoration. And that's because from his lips had come both praising and cursing. Profane words had also come out. And now that he's in the very presence of God Almighty, he's painfully aware of his guilt. His uncleanness stands out. And there is nothing, nothing he can do about it. But God does something about it, doesn't he? God graciously provides atonement. He covers over his sins. He cleanses those lips that are unworthy to bring his message. Look at verses six and seven. Then one of the seraphs flew to me with a live coal in his hands, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it, he touched my mouth and said, see, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. This divine act of cleansing was necessary For Isaiah to stand in God's holy presence and for him to be commissioned as his prophet, his mouthpiece, his sin had to be atoned for. His guilt had to be taken away. And we know that this live cold and this act of cleansing that took place in Isaiah's vision pointed ahead. It was pointing to Jesus Christ. It was pointing to the one who would die on that altar, who would come and die on the cross to atone for our sins, and he would turn away the wrath of God so that we could come into his holy presence. So here we have an Old Testament foreshadowing of the great atoning work of Jesus Christ. Here we have a picture of God's gracious redemption of the only way that we could ever hope to be in heaven. Well, now that Isaiah's lips have been cleansed, does he speak boldly? Does he join with the seraphs in songs of praise? No. Now, for the first time in this vision, God speaks. The voice of God now booms out, and he asks a piercing question. Verse 8, what does he say? Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? Basically, what God's asking for here is a spokesman, a covenant attorney. He wanted one who would speak on his behalf, who would represent him before his people. And it's only now, after his lips are cleansed, that Isaiah is able to respond. Now he can be used as God's tool to bring his word to his people. And if you go on and you study the book of Isaiah, you'll see that he does bring a word of judgment chapters 1 through 39 are all about the judgment on judah but then beautifully in chapter 40 it turns and goes all the way through chapter 66 and brings a word of comfort as well the gospel well now we get isaiah's obedient response what does he say here am i send me We've come to the end of our passage for this morning. And I think you'd agree that this is one of the most powerful passages in all the pages of scripture. What have we learned here this morning and how can we apply it? Well, we learn much about our great and holy God. As we joined Isaiah in the heavenly throne room, as we focused on his supreme attribute of holiness, we have come to realize that he is holy. He's not just holy though. He's even holy, holy. No, he's even more than that. He is holy, holy, holy. He is high and lifted up. He's utterly transcendent, and he is totally perfect. We, by contrast, are unholy, unholy, unholy. We're lowly creatures who live on the level of the profane, who wallow in sin and hardly even notice it. With that kind of contrast, I trust you understand that if you ever want to be in God's holy presence, you and I need Jesus Christ. Amen? You need his atonement to cover your sin. You need his white robe of righteousness wrapped around you in heaven. You need and I need to be cleansed and clothed by Christ. And the only way that you can receive Christ and those benefits I'm talking about is by faith in him alone, by trusting him alone. Not by working your way up to him, but trusting him completely. And I call you to that faith. If you've never believed before, now is the day of salvation. Now is the day to trust in Christ. And if you are trusting in Christ, never ever look anywhere else for the hope of eternal life. I trust that you've not only learned more about God's attribute, I hope and pray that you've also been powerfully impacted by it. This should also affect your worship. You need to realize that each Sabbath day when you come to worship, you worship this holy God. And that means that you must not come tritely or flippantly, thinking that God should be glad that you showed up thinking that God is fun, 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 and maybe you should be entertained. No, you should come joyfully to be sure, but also balancing that joy with reverence. You need to come humbly, even perhaps with some fear and trembling. We should approach God in the way that the writer of Ecclesiastes tells us. In Ecclesiastes 5, verses 1 and 2, he says, guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Go he- near go near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools who do not know that they do wrong. Do not be quick with your mouth. Do not be hasty with your heart to utter anything before God. God is in heaven and you are on earth. So let your words be few. Do not forget that. Guard your steps. Watch your tongue. God is in heaven. You are on earth. Come to worship With immense joy and with intense respect. Well, this sermon should not only impact your worship here on Sunday, it also should impact your witness out there on Monday. You see, you've been cleansed. Your life and your lips have been cleansed if you're trusting in Christ. And you have been commissioned in Matthew 28 to be Christ's witnesses to the world, to make disciples. And if there's one thing that's lacking in our day, it's the awareness of God's absolute holiness. People are asleep to this attribute and they need to wake up. And if they do, a revival may break out, even a full-blown reformation. And so you need to be telling them about God's holiness, how he is separate and spotless, and their need for Christ, for his atonement, for his robe that can be theirs by faith in him alone. And that is the gospel, isn't it? That's the good news that they need to hear. That through Christ, we can approach God, and that's the only way. So now I conclude with a simple but very important question. Will you let them know about God's holiness and about Christ's cleansing and clothing? Will you? Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you that you gave us a glimpse into your very throne room this morning through Isaiah's vision. And we pray, Lord, that it would powerfully impact each one of us exactly as you intend. Please move us by your spirit so that we will be witnesses in this world that's asleep to your holiness. We pray as we witness that you would wake them up so that they will flee to Christ. If there are any who do not trust Christ yet, but perhaps are trusting themselves, that they may be good enough. We pray that you would open their eyes to the blackness, their filth, so that they can turn to you and have their sin atoned for and receive that white robe in glory. And so we pray, Lord, that you take your word and use it as a double-edged sword to powerfully impact us here today. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.